I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we're your guide to classical music. In this episode, I'm joined by WETA Classical's Evan Keeley, and we're exploring one of the most original first symphonies, Gustav Mahler's Symphony No. 1. It's considered a masterpiece today, but initially it was misunderstood. We show you what sets this symphony apart, what to listen for, and more. Stay with us to the end to hear some interesting quotes on Mahler. Plus, we read your reviews from Apple Podcasts. If you know Mahler, this will make sense. And if not, this might help when it comes to understanding his music. You've probably heard about studies on delayed gratification. One of them being, I think, like when they put a kid at a table in a room and have a big marshmallow in front of them and they say, you can eat this now or wait 15 minutes and then you'll get two. Now, is 15 minutes worth waiting for two marshmallows? Probably not, to be honest. But uh, this symphony is also a test of patience in a good way. And Evan, I think it is so, so worth it. And that, I think, characterizes not only Mahler's style, but the style he embodies, which is sometimes called post-romantic. These very long pieces, these huge musical structures, and there really is a sense of waiting expectation that's part of that aesthetic. And Mahler really is a master of it. Mm, I like that, waiting expectation. And this symphony was quite different than other first symphonies from composers. This this one might be really one of the most original firsts since Berlioz. And Mahler, he was actually in his 20s when he wrote this. And we'll do an episode on his life later on, but we'll give you a little bit of a, a background now. Evan, can you give us some quick details to bring us up to his life um, in this first symphony? Gustav Mahler was born on July 7, 1860 in Bohemia, which uh, today is part of the Czech Republic, but in 1860 was part of the Austrian Empire. His family was German-speaking, and they were Jewish, and he's living in Bohemia, where most people speak Czech and are Roman Catholics, so you see this sense of alienation of being different somehow throughout Mahler's life, and that's a theme in his music. Uh, He also shows a very precocious talent for music from a very early age. His parents really encouraged that, and he went into the Vienna Conservatory in 1875. I think he was about 15 at the time, studied piano and composition. Hugo Wolf was a fellow student there, famous for his leader, and Wolf and Mahler became lifelong friends. And like so many composers of his generation, especially in the German-speaking world, Mahler, very influenced by the music of Richard Wagner and also the music of Anton Bruckner. And Bruckner was at the Vienna Conservatory at that time, and they knew each other. And uh, you see that influence throughout Mahler's life as a conductor and as a composer. And in 1880, he completes his first big work, Das Klagende Lied, a work for orchestra and chorus and voices. And he also began his conducting career that year. And conducting, in fact, would be his primary means of support throughout his life. He earned renown as a conductor much more than as a composer in his lifetime, especially conducting at the Vienna Opera and the Metropolitan Opera in New York here in the United States. The symphony we'll be looking at today, the first symphony, was composed between 1887 and 1888. Something very interesting here, Evan, as we'll learn, this symphony is so detailed. It's There's so much happening here. It's extraordinary that at this young age, in his 20s, as he's just been kind of wandering a little bit or unsure, that he has the fortitude to sit down and, and write something like this. Yeah. So let's explore the symphony, what to listen for, and everything, because there's a lot happening. 
Now, we will try to be not so pedantic, but we already have to stop and explain the first notes. It sounds like this comes into existence from nothing. It's a very high, very airy sound, and that's because the strings are using harmonics. They are lightly pressing their finger against the string at a certain point, but they aren't pressing it down to the fingerboard. So when you use the bow, this enables the uh, string to resonate at a much higher pitch. It also means the entrance, uh, the articulation, the beginning of the notes aren't that precise. The sound, I think, is it's kind of like a, it's diffuse like a lampshade. And I love what you said, John, about it's diffuse like a lampshade. This whole opening to this symphony, there's this sort of weird, otherworldly quality to it, right? Like, what what are we even hearing? Where does he get this idea, This these harmonics? One of the other things I mentioned, you mentioned about harmonics and the finger lightly touching the string, which means vibrato is pretty much an impossibility, too. Mm-hmm. And so there's just this sort of this weird, it's like, it's like, a, it's like a computer. It's like a synthesizer. You know, just this, this yeah. strange mechanical sound and this open octaves that go all the way across the span from the highest to the lowest. And it's just a, an incredible effect. Like like we were talking earlier about this expectation. What's going to happen next? It, it catches you right away. You kind of wonder, well, what's being depicted here? We have these very soft descending fourths, this interval that gets repeated as it kind of sequences um, uh, down. Clarinet entrance sounds like hunting horns in the distance, followed by gentle lines and the actual horn, offstage trumpets. Mahler was very deeply in love with nature and depicting nature and also depicting the human experience. I think you can say Mahler was quite existential. And we can even ask, well, why use clarinets to depict something like hunting horns in the distance? Why not use horns offstage? Well, maybe that's a little boring. There's there's more abstract art and concepts happening within music at this time compared to um, before. So the sounds of uh, nature, this is growing. Things are moving very, uh, very slowly. Musical ideas are um, evolving longer than um, we have with Mozart or Beethoven, that delayed expectation you mentioned. Another thing that I really appreciate about this opening is there's this diffuse quality in terms of the timbre, but there's also a diffuse quality in terms of the key. Mm-hmm. You you don't have a lot of triads. You don't have a real clear depiction of what key we're in. You have this open octaves in the strings, and then the clarinet comes in with this perfect fourth doot, 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 doot. Well, is this major? Is this minor? Is it, you know, where are we? And there's this sense of, you know, like we're we're sitting outside, the open sky beckons to us. Maybe there's a bird in the distance, the clouds are wafting, and there's this sort of timelessness about it. And we're just waiting for, to find out what is the composer trying to say to us, and yet we're already intrigued. Something that's very characteristic of Mahler that you don't hear in the music, but you see in the score and in your parts, he is so meticulous, isn't he? He writes in plain German language and in complete sentences, instructions, a lot in the conductor's score and a lot in the players and the musicians' parts. I've played this and I've studied Mahler many times. Actually, this is the symphony I've played more than any other for uh, whatever reason. Nobody else writes direction for musicians like Mahler, like this. Eventually, you learn all of them, but you 
tend to keep a, a guide, a glossary on hand to uh, just to be safe. When I was in music school all those years ago, a lot of my colleagues would joke that they wanted to take German classes at school just so they could play Mahler. Yeah. Learn the language. All these, you know, these, he's like, oh, they're almost paragraphs, these long instructions on exactly how to play things. He doesn't use Italian most of the time. He mm -hmm. uses German. And he really wants to be very clear. He, he has a very clear vision for what he wants, and he wants to communicate that as clearly as possible. So this is a slow introduction, and as we've learned in previous episodes, that's a pretty common thing in symphonies. This is a little unusual, however, in how it is uh, stretched out, it sets the scene, and provides material for the rest of the symphony in these fragments, like, uh, like those um, fourths. Then we get to a moment that will come back in many ways and in uh, so much of Mahler's music, and that is we get this kind of creeping, repeating rhythm. Often starts in the low brass or the low strings, specifically here, and it repeats. It's um, menacing, it gets higher and higher, and it's building and building. Mahler's often building up in this way. When you usually hear this, you can expect something big to kind of happen next, and then this grows into a beautiful, beautiful moment, um, Evan, this beautiful melody that comes from one of his songs. And again, the impact here, this is several minutes into the symphony. When you sit down and listen to this, uh, it's such a beautiful moment. One of the things I love about this too, John, is this building and building and building it. And I think a less creative, less ingenious composer would have then built to this huge climactic crashing, and that would have been very effective. But Mala builds and builds and builds. We're expecting this, you know, tremendous cataclysmic thing to happen. And what we get instead is this kind of this folk-like little melody. And this is where we need to remember that Mahler, before he wrote this symphony, wrote a song cycle of four songs. Lieder eines Fahnen Gesellen, Songs of a Wayfarer. He wrote some poetry, uh, it's his own poetry, and then he set it to music. And it's just sort of this very personal journey. And as we dive deeper into this symphony, John, we'll be remembering the ways in which this is a very autobiographical, very personal statement about his life at that time and his feelings and his experiences. So he quotes these four songs quite a bit in this symphony. And if you listen to a performance of the song cycle, and if you know the symphony, uh, there's a lot of very familiar back and forth. It's almost like he's in conversation with himself. So where we have this buildup in this uh, first movement of the symphony, we get to this folk-like melody, and he's quoting one of the songs here. And what he's quoting is a song about uh, walking around in the field in the morning and the birds are singing and this young man is enjoying the beauty of nature and feeling all the joy and expectation of a beautiful day but also this sense of foreboding that his own happiness is not really going to come to fruition so there's a, there's a celebratory quality there's a, a sense of real delight and bliss but there's also something underneath that's much more sinister and uncertain and we hear how that fourth motif uh, from the opening, it's the building block for the symphony as it starts off this beautiful melody in which the, the text lines up perfectly with what we hear. Walking in the morning across a field, the dew still clinging to, uh, to the grass. And you also hear it in non-melodic ways, uh, in very metronomic-like accompaniment ways in the background. It's always, always um, very close by. 
this builds into something quite beautiful, a great moment, and you think there's going to be something bigger, but comes back down, and we repeat. He's repeating the exposition. This is the section that comes after the introduction. This was very common with composers like Mozart and Haydn, even into Beethoven's time. Not always done as the 19th century progresses, and we're into the late part of that. Mahler does the repeat, and actually he does it in um, other works too. Sometimes they are very, very long repeats. Yes, interesting question for conductors nowadays and over the generations, you know, which repeats do we really want to observe? You see that with a lot of composers, but certainly with these very long pieces by Mahler. You know, it's interesting to me the way in which he's combining some really innovative ideas into this first symphony of his, but also these very old-fashioned ideas, like a repeating the exposition, going all the way back to the age of Haydn in that gesture, and yet so much of what he does in this symphony is so original and unique and unprecedented. And what Mahler is doing, he's building things up and he takes it back down. He builds it up a little more and he brings it back down. He's constantly teasing out these tension um, and releases. And we get to this this moment Again, where this harmonic is being used, we, he distills music down into this single uh, note or this um, octave of notes. The cuckoos um, enter, the, the flute comes back with this motif. It feels like we're in a different land. We're suddenly not in that field with dew and a beautiful morning, but actually we feel very alone, very, very lonely. It's almost not disconcerting to listen to, but there's a very real loneliness to the moment here, like we're back in the forest, but really alone with just these little bits of outbursts of wildlife around us. I think that's a really, uh, that's a characteristic of Mahler in general. There's this mirthfulness, but there's an edge to it. There's a sense that happiness is built on illusions and that the only thing we can really count on is our aloneness. Uh, yeah, and I think, you know, Mahler struggles with these kinds of themes. Uh, there's a despair, but there's also, as we'll see in the symphony especially, this hope that emerges toward the end, the sense of possibility that he's never quite able to relinquish. And I love that about Mahler in that it reminds me of Tchaikovsky in some of those ways and how he depicts at times despair and other times uh, joy, but in very um, different ways, but with some uh, some similarities. Yes. From this uh, loneliness, we get this resolution, um, a real feeling of relief as the horns usher us back into this um, clear space, maybe a happy mental state. And from here, we start building back up to now the end of the movement, some slight ups and downs along the way. But again, when you listen to Mahler and you start hearing uh, a repeating line in the low brass and the strings, you know it's about to, um, to get big. The climax of this movement, and again, this is something we can't fully depict here after you've been sitting for like um, you know 15 minutes listening to it. It is so rewarding. It is so gratifying. Mahler's use of the horns, uh, the horn section, is extraordinary. There's no real other way to put it. He is a favorite um, for many. I, am, I feel so sad that Beethoven didn't get to hear the horn uh, played this way. Not just as a section with these huge heroic lines, but also aggressive trills at fortissimo that add a very shiny brilliance to his music. I love the color that Mahler brings and how it's 
very, very bright and effervescent, but still has a lot of um, a low end to the sound, too. One of the great things about Mahler we see from this very first symphony is he has a, such of a, a mastery of being able to convey what's in his imagination through the palette of the orchestral colors and to use the instruments in ways which were very often quite innovative, quite challenging for the players of his era. Uh, but, uh, you know, players nowadays, you'd go to an audition for uh, an orchestra. Many a brass player has had to uh, play Mahler excerpts, as you can attest, John. And, you know, this, he's just such, a, such an ingenious way of handling the instruments uh, as individual instruments and in these groupings and the orchestra as a whole. And also with Mahler, reminding me again of uh, Tchaikovsky in a similar way of how he uses contrasting motion, how some lines are going up, some are going down. With Tchaikovsky, it can feel very linear, um, lines you know, going up and going down, crossing like a perfect X or something. Mahler, sometimes it's like a, a bowl of uh, spaghetti is thrown on the floor, um, and things are swirling all around and passing through each other. Yeah, and yet it's not, it's, uh, it's, it, I think that's a great description, John, but it's not just arbitrary no, chaos. No. There's a there's a method to the yes. madness, but there is madness. You might think after hearing this movement um that well people must have loved this symphony as much as we do, right? At the premiere they must have loved it, but uh, that did not quite pan out, did it? People did not maybe even understand this when they first heard it. Yeah, he's really doing something quite new here. I think part of the idea is uh you know, there's there's some confusion about what he's trying to say both in a, in a musical sense, but also in a literary sense. And early performances of the symphony actually had a program that Mahler shared with the audience. And uh, John, you've been comparing this to Tchaikovsky in some ways. I find it fascinating to compare this symphony with Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony that you and I did an episode about a while back. And Tchaikovsky had a program for the Sixth Symphony, but he wouldn't tell anybody what it was. Mahler had a program for this symphony, which he did share, but then as the years went by and subsequent performances, he took that away. And I find that a really fascinating puzzle. What was he trying to reveal or change about how this work would be understood? So I suspect that was part of the confusion that audiences experienced with this work. What is this guy trying to say to us? What's this whole elaborate story that he's adding in the program notes? What do they mean? Is this just this narcissistic young man having an ego trip? And of course, the musical style and the structure of the instrumentation are all filled with these things that are novel. And I think audiences on some level weren't quite ready for this very creative way of expressing symphonic form. I think you're right about that. And we're going to put on the show notes page uh, some of what Mahler wrote and described it. Because um, when you look at this and how it would have been built um, you know, in a program, it's got like part one and then different points about it, part two. Um, there's a movement that he calls Dal Inferno al Paradiso. And I mean, if I just looked at this, I would never guess this was Mahler. I would think, oh, this is some Franz Liszt piece. He also made changes not to just how he described the program or, or listed it in a literal program, Evan, right? He he took out an entire movement itself, Blumina or Blumini, and eventually after a couple of performances, he took it right out. And I think that was a good choice. I agree. The five movements, uh, it's a kind of a different thing. There's a few recordings that use that original version just for comparison's sake, I suppose. This movement actually got lost for many years, so you really get a sense Mahler, when he took it out, really just wanted to forget the whole thing. 
Uh, Blue Mini was actually originally part of some other piece. It was for incidental music for a theatrical work. Uh, most of that music is also lost. So there's a sense of Mahler really discarding this whole thing. It was rediscovered in 1966. Uh, Donald Mitchell, uh, a musical writer who specializes in Mahler, discovered this Blue Mini movement. Uh, Benjamin Britten gave the first uh, post-Mahler lifetime performance of it at the Alderborough Festival in 1967. And it's still a, uh, it's a wonderful piece. It's a beautiful piece by itself. And I think it actually stands alone better than it does as part of this symphony. I think so, too. And that brings us to the actual second movement of the symphony. And right from the opening again, I think we hear um, already another pattern, some similarity here, an interval, um, the fourth. So, Evan, tell us about this one, because it seems like it also comes from uh, a previous composer. He did something like repeating that exposition that was more classical, and now it sounds like he's taking something from maybe Haydn. Yeah, so you go back to the Haydn era, The uh, this usually very often the third movement, sometimes the second movement, is a minuet and trio. This goes way back to the Baroque era. Haydn adapted it for the symphony. You look at the symphonies of Beethoven and so forth, and uh, the scherzo that evolved out of that with symphonies like Brahms or Bruckner. And Mahler is taking this really rather old-fashioned form and making it the second movement of his symphony. So the form itself is not anything particularly innovative. And the melody that we hear at the beginning, these fourths, like you said, John, this uh, this uh, triad, almost like a bugle call. There's this rustic quality to it. And I think what Mahler is doing here is replacing the minuet with a lendler. And we don't often hear that term today. The Lendler is kind of a, a rustic dance uh, in Central Europe in the late 18th, early 19th century, kind of a precursor to the waltz. And there's a waltz-like quality here. So I often wonder if he's, Mahler is replacing the very elegant minuet with something that's a little bit more rough around the edges. And you definitely have this kind of rustic quality to this music. Rustic, that's... That's a good descriptor, I think, for this. That really uh, resonates for me, rustic. There's also, again, points in here for the horn. Mahler loved the horn. And you may not even quite recognize the sound. They sound very nasally, very bright, very... It's just a very different sound. And what they're doing is they're playing stopped. And that is, they aren't just... Well, when you see a horn player play, they have their right hand in the bell... Um, for various reasons, but it's not completely plugging up the bell. Here, for stopped playing, they completely block the um, end of the bell with their hands, so no air is really coming out, and it creates this very, very nasally sound. And it adds a very um, bright uh, texture and timbre to uh, Mahler's music. It reminds me of a certain percussion instrument, the one you, um, I forget what it's called, you swing it around, and it makes that um, uh, sound. Well, we're probably hearing it now. I'll, I'll add it in later, but... I love that moment and how he uses horns. He's writing in some things into parts that you really notice when you go to see this in person, like uh, telling instruments like clarinets or oboes to point their the end of the instrument, the, the bell, up, out towards the audience so the sound is going directly forward instead of um, more down or around it, I guess. Um, this is something that you'll find, it, it, it does predate Mahler, but it's in a lot of his music, and it's still in use today, um, particularly in things like a uh, marching band, uh, believe it or not. I think that Mahler would have loved today's marching bands. Uh, mm. There's a theatrical quality to this music. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I find interesting about that, like you said, John, it's not something that originates with Mahler, 
but he writes Schallrichter in der Höhe, lift up your bells uh, in, the, in these wind parts, puts an exclamation point in the instruction. <laughs> you know, Do it now. Why is there an exclamation? He really wants to make sure we know to raise those bells, gosh darn it. And there's just a, a marvelous quality to that that I find so delightful. I can't think of anything written that I've played before 1990 that has an exclamation point in it, um, in the music. That, that's unusual. <laughs> What's also kind of confusing is that it sounds like the movement ends right in the middle of it. Before we go to um, um, a, a slower or, or a more soft section, it really sounds like the end of the movement, um, maybe lining up in a way that he thought of with his original program. Right, but this is the classic minuet and trio form. So you could say this is the trio, and this is the middle section of this dance movement. And suddenly much more elegant, I think, John. Mm-hmm. You know, the, this opening section is really kind of rough, and then this is almost almost smug to me uh, in its refined quality. And it's, uh, it's a little disconcerting to go from the raucous horns of the first section to this more dainty kind of musical quality and yet it works yes and this entire section it's brought in and it's brought out by the horns i find that interesting maybe something more with um, nature of course that instrument really associated with nature and of course we know Mahler. maybe this whole trio section was a daydream itself before we get back into um, the dance and one more point on this is that while this is um wild and there's a lot happening there's also a lot of stylization in Mahler's music I think actually we we, we for surely play his music better today than um, he was able to get from orchestras um, in his own time Michael Tilson Thomas here with the San Francisco Symphony really really able to place notes slightly adjust the tempo uh, moving things faster or slower I mean if you think of a waltz um, like a Viennese waltz, traditionally, those aren't even played in the exact strict metronomic one, two, three time. Too much to explain for now, but there's a lot of stylization and a lot of control com- uh, conductors need to really, I think, make this um, movement and his music in general come across, and it's done brilliantly here. Yeah, I agree with you, John. This Michael Tilson Thomas San Francisco Symphony performance is really exceptional. And we'll get into the next movement right after this. Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music, is made possible by WETA Classical. Join us for the music and insightful commentary anytime, day or night. You can stream the music online at wetaclassical.org or in the WETA Classical app. It's free in the App Store. Now it's time for the third movement, Evan, one that probably upset audiences the most, one that I really, really love. It opens with the timpani. And what are these intervals? They're fourths. I mean, the timpani is going five, one, five, one, but it's still that interval of a fourth and possibly inspiration for this coming from this um, illustration or, or drawing from Moritz von Schwind. It's basically a funeral procession of a hunter, but all of the procession is made up of, of animals in the forest. Right. There's this very sarcastic, sardonic kind of quality to this, uh, you know, whether or not he was actually, Mahler was inspired by this image or something like it. It's a little hard to be sure, mm-hmm. 
But uh, this whole thing has this sort of bad dream quality about it. But it's so compelling. Even for, like you said, that bum, 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 the one, that interval of a fourth with the timpani at the very beginning. But then we have this really remarkable solo instrument right here, don't we, John? Yes. The double bass comes in. Very big audition, um, except for bass and some of the instruments that follow. Then the bassoon comes in, um, then the cello, then the tubo. It's Frere Jaca in a minor key. And it is very eerie as, you know, they're not, they're passing this line off, but it's not one completely finishes and then the next. There's um, overlap between these and they slowly grow more and more together, almost like the procession, if you want to think of it this way, of, of these animals um, going through the forest carrying this um, hunter, whatever, funeral. There's more joining in as it goes along, and then by the end, you know, you're seeing it go off in the uh, the distance. You know, if I was an animal, I don't know if I would be part of that. You know, he he's a hunter; he can take himself. You know, you know, leave me out of this. <laughs> well, but there's this this really uh, edgy quality to it, though, isn't there, John? Mm-hmm. This song. Oh, we're so glad that he's dead. You know, who, whose funeral is Mahler actually thinking about here? I mean, there's this really kind of horrifying quality to this that I find. It's it's a very dark joke. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting, too, to note in this whole section, you know, we were talking earlier about how specific Mahler is in his verbal instructions and the score. And he's very careful at the beginning of this whole movement to write... All voices are to be pianissimo without crescendo. So there's this kind of stifled quality. Like it's, it's we can't speak above a whisper ever for this whole section. Uh, and it's like the joke is so naughty. It's so, it's so inappropriate to make this just ghastly, morbid joke that we don't want to say it too loudly. Yeah. But we can still hear it, and he still wants us to hear it. Something we also hear in his music, this klezmer. Uh, band moment in the in the music. I love this, and it will come back later. But this slowly starts to deconstruct um, from this Frere Jacques um, moment in time down to a single note. Basically, while he's distilling it all back down, and then out of that grows something new. The harp rises out of it, and then we get this gorgeous melody from one of his other songs. This is another quotation from the Lieder eines Fahnen Gesellen, the Songs of a Wayfarer. And in this section, he's evoking uh, a song, which again, the poetry is by Mahler himself. And he's imagining sleeping under a tree and finding this, seeking out this spirit of restfulness that's eluded him. So there's a there's this beautiful, tranquil quality to it. But again, underneath that is the sense of unfulfillment. It feels like the smallest, tiniest bird, the littlest melody you can hold in your hand. It's just for you. Um, In a little box, you can look at it whenever um, you want just for you. I love these um, intimate moments. Yeah, I feel the same way, John. There's this kind of fragility to these little melodic fragments or these moments of exquisite beauty that come out of this this uncertainty or this despair. And then there's this something that's so precious and lovely. And it's like a bird, you're afraid it's going to fly away. But almost like uh, Hitchcock or, or um, Poe, terror is just right around the corner, something yes. very unsettling. This moment as the march comes down 
entrance with the tam-tam and the bass drum. And actually, he's even, he even writes in the music, uh, there's this long note for the tuba. If the tuba player cannot play this precisely at this dynamic, very soft, have the contrabassoon play it. So he's very trying to control the sound here. We've had so many transitions where it distills down into one note. Here, it's just silence. And then, like a horror movie, what is it, like Freddy Cougar or, or um, Michael or something, just walking towards you with a knife, you know, Halloween, um, it just comes back in, and it's, it is so terrifying. Yeah. And the weird thing here, too, is he raises it a half step. So the, the thing starts in D minor, and then when we have the return of this funeral march melody, it's an E flat minor, very strange key. Very and a very strange tradition. Very Yes, he knows exactly what he's doing. And then we have this transition from the third movement to the finale. And Mahler does something in the score here, which I find really fascinating. It's not unusual in a multi-movement work for one movement to go directly into the next movement without any pause. And Mahler indicates that in the score. He says, you know, the fourth movement is to immediately follow. But he also puts a fermata, a hold sign, on the double bar at the end of the third movement. So there's this long pause, and he says, go on to the next movement, but he also wants a long pause there. So what the heck is it? I mean, it's like this paradox, like go on, but don't go on. What do we even do there? What is a conductor supposed to do? I think a lot of conductors probably don't lower their arms, mm -hmm. which is a kind of a nonverbal cue to the audience that that's where they can clap or cough or whatever. And then all of a sudden, this fourth movement finally kicks in. It's the longest movement of the piece, both in terms of time and in terms of the sheer number of measures. And we have this whole long journey to go on before we can get to the end. And this, you know, from this dying out at the end of the third movement to this fiery storm at the beginning of the fourth movement, uh, it's just an incredible effect. And the effect is so striking when you think of these outer movements, the first one starting almost as diffuse as possible, this one starting with an extremely pointed articulation. And part of the stormy feel here is how Mahler is using the violins, what he's writing for them right away in the opening. He's writing in rhythmically in, in a cellarando-like effect, in that the tempo, the beats aren't getting faster, but the number of notes per beat is increasing. It gives us very um, windswept sound. And this goes on, and you're, you, you can be tossed around, and from that emerges this um, extraordinary theme. It's an incredible, imposing, very, very direct theme, a type of theme we've really not gotten quite yet in the, um, in the symphony. And there's this great quote, Evan, that I found in several program notes I can't find the actual source for it, but I'm seeing it all over the place, so we'll take it with a, a grain of salt. Maybe this was from the description he had done in the paper before, I think, the first premiere, but allegedly Mahler wrote this, saying, The hero is exposed to the most fearful combats and to all the sorrows of the world. He and his triumphant motifs are hit on the head again and again by destiny. Only when he has triumphed over death and when all the glorious memories of youth have returned with themes from the first movement does he get the upper hand, and there is a great victorious chorale. And this lines up exactly with the music, I think, as we'll see. 
I couldn't find the source of that quote either, John, but boy, it's, uh, yeah, a grain of salt I think is appropriate, but whoever said that, and it may have been Mahler himself, that does in fact give us a pretty darn good description of what's happening here. Another thing you can listen for um, in Mahler's writing towards the end of this opening section, again, it's so fast um, and it seems inconsequential, but it really isn't. He writes um, swelling lines in um, the brass lines where they just whoom, just amp up really quick. It sounds deceptively easy and simple, but it takes an inordinate amount of time to actually get this under control and really play this correctly when you're when you're studying your instrument. It takes years to fully master and control the instrument just as you can, you know, easily, I don't know, put butter on toast or something. Mahler really demands precision uh, from individual players and from whole ensembles. And yeah, I think in the in the 1880s, uh, when musicians were not used to these kinds of demands being placed upon them, the sound may not have been the most satisfying. But uh, fortunately, orchestras today who are steeped in this, and as you were saying, John, uh, you really have to spend years developing these kinds of techniques to play this music the way Mahler meant to, for it to be played. And we can enjoy that today. And we know Mahler takes a long time to develop things. He does a lot of tension building and then a little bit of release and then tension um, and then release. So it's not too surprising that from this huge storm, we actually go back down and we get this um, eerie, rather um, long, tense section that is very delicate and um, it's very beautiful. Again, I think we're seeing a pattern here with how Mahler uh, brings these kinds of things in. So as this section builds and there starts to be uh, tension, he builds it up and reaches this, this, this dynamic and the actual release, the um, resolution here, it's not quite complete. It leaves us wanting. It reaches the climax actually before that uh, resolution. And this is just more of, you know, we got to wait for our second uh, marshmallow. And then what's next, Evan? But a beautiful moment uh, for the horn, one of Mahler's favorite instruments. And then from here, something we've seen several times, what happens when we have uh, someone coming in with this uh, slow, repeated line again and again building up? It just builds up to something quite cataclysmic in the music. But even this is um, short-lived, followed by another theme that's introduced quietly. And this is very different, I think. It brings us to the end. It's heroic and it gets huge. But he introduces it in a very – it's just interesting. It's quiet. It's very delicate. I feel like so many composers would just come out and scream it. Here's, here's my theme. Okay, this is the moment you've been waiting for. This is the second marshmallow. You, but Mahler 
kind of slips it around the corner almost. Yeah, it's. I think of um, you see this huge shadow from, coming from behind the around the corner that looks like a lion, but it, you know it's a little mouse with a with a toothpick. <laughs> and I want everyone to just listen to this next moment for a second because it actually comes back later a little bit differently. And although this passes by quickly, it really shows how Mahler is very clever in setting up these resolutions or climaxes. This moment builds up, then the tempo is pulled back, and a little space is added in the music, and it delays this expected climax. So I guess, you know, where where do we go from here? Does it build all the way to the end at this point? No, it comes back down, and it actually brings back the beginning of the symphony. We have uh, the nature. Uh, we have bird calls. It, again, he's distilling it down, and then he builds it back up. And for a while, we get just this extraordinary moment, which I have to say, Evan, is so great to see this in person. Um, I've been so lucky to see two big orchestras do Mahler cycles. And seeing this in person, I mean, it's it's cheesy to say it's life-changing or something, but it can be quite existential um, being you know, in a room with 2,000 people experiencing this moment all at the same time. Mahler writes in the score here, sehr zart und ausdruckvoll gesungen, very tender and expressively sung. So we have this slow building back up, but even that is just momentary. Yeah. We talk a lot about um, timing or, or rhythm with composers and across a symphony, just like in a movie, you know, how things are spread out across an act. And Mahler is a genius with that, as you can tell. And things are starting to kind of build up and come back down maybe a little quicker as things are um, starting to amp up, although it might still be um, a soft dynamic like this moment here, this um, moment for the oboe that is just um, beautiful and just hanging out there. And I really hear in this particular moment the influence of Anton Bruckner. I don't know if I'm right to say that, but there's this sense, you know, Bruckner is such a master of this building and building over long phrases and long sections of music. And I think Mahler is evoking that spirit so marvelously here. A lot of these moments may start to sound uh, familiar as we're describing them kind of in, in the, the same way at different points. And it shows Mahler's thinking as well at this point because he's able to construct and deconstruct themes from like a small motif like the, um, the fourth. And then he also treats everything like um, maybe like those little toy blocks for kids. He's able to take things down and then rebuild them. Now, remember earlier, Evan, when Mahler delayed that big resolution by a beat or two, giving us this um, uh, suspense, this delayed gratification? Listen for the change here. I think this is so intentional, and I think it's also sneaky. You don't quite realize it even. Actually, I didn't really even thought about it too much until we started um, working on this episode. This is very intentional, and it creates this jump of forward motion that I don't think you would quite get if we didn't have that contrast before. Now we get to a section, Evan, that I think you really only see with Mahler, and that is where he tells the horn section to literally get out of their chairs to stand up.
He's really, uh, there's a theatrical quality to so much of this music. Uh, we mentioned earlier that discarded second movement that was part of a theater piece or raising the, the, the woodwind players, raising their bells. You know, Mahler's not, he doesn't fail to think about the visual aspects. The, you, you were talking earlier, John, about being present for a performance of one of these pieces and what it's like to actually be in the room. It's great that we have these wonderful recordings to listen to. That's, that's wonderful. But I think Mahler is really thinking about the physical experience of being present and having something like the horn players stand up. I think he's really, uh, his creativity is really focused on the actual experience of being in the room when the music is being played and what that's like. Yes, it's it's so striking because they also stand up together with intention. It's not just like meandering, like, oh, I'm going to go get a go get a drink or something. They They all stand up together. You can also see in your part, Bells Up, which is where they literally kind of pivot and their horns um, kind of go in the air. The visual effect is striking, as you just uh, described. There is a sonic or, an, or an, an audible difference as well. One, when the bells are pointed up, they're now not pointed maybe towards the ground, into the percussion section, into other people, but now higher up directly into a wall, which bounces back into the audience. So it's also really dependent um, on the space, how much sonically it makes a difference, but He's also writing for the horns that they are basically to uh, dominate, to soar through the orchestra, and that's part of the effect here as well. This is why people love Mahler, uh, myself included, and that's because you sit, you listen, and he brings you, at the end, everything and the kitchen sink, but it's also very, very, very balanced. And the color palette, for me, is just um, its its just out of this world. I completely agree, and I would add that this is a very, as, I, as we were saying, a very personal statement on the part of the composer. And, you know, one way to look at that is to say that he's depicting his experience as a young man who is trying to find his place in the world, uh, one of the things he's struggling with is this very bitter disappointment in love. He's in love with someone and it doesn't work out and he's heartbroken. And this symphony is an expression of that. It's very easy for those kinds of things to be mundane. These are pretty typical experiences that a lot of people have. And this could be filled with very trite, very uninteresting expressions of, oh, I'm a young man trying to figure out who I am. And it could be quite boring. And Mahler's, because he is so creative, so original, so steeped in this tradition of Wagner and Bruckner, of being able to take these grand, gigantic ideas and these timeless themes, and he's able to express them in a way that's so compelling and powerful to us even today through the course of his development of ideas, the way he extends and, and makes us wait and makes the wait worthwhile, the extraordinary use of different colors and timbres and sounds, the hinting at thematic material and then finally giving it to us in a full form at the end. It's just a very satisfying and well-constructed work that it doesn't surprise me. This continues to be one of Mahler's best-loved works and one of the best-loved works in the repertoire. And for all the reasons you described, that's why I think so many people have a hard time falling asleep after a concert of Mahler 1 at night with a big orchestra. You, It's so electric. You, I'm awake for a long time after a, a concert. I remember those nights. Now, 
at the end of such a long and interesting journey, sometimes it's worth looking back to where we started, the opening of the first movement. A single note played in different octaves with this harmonic technique, motifs growing from it. I think you get the idea of how everything we've been describing fits directly into this right at the opening of the symphony and um, how Mahler's approaching the entire thing. It's the whole world evolving from this tiny, high-pitched, almost squeal of a computer. And before we finish, let's take a look at a couple of quotes that I think are better uh, mentioned now at the end. Um, One critic said, I think even a close friend, uh, Victor von Herzfeld, said, All of our great conductors have themselves eventually recognized or proved that they were not composers. This is true of Mahler also. Uh, Another critic said, we will always be delighted to see him, Mahler that is, on the podium as long as he does not direct his own compositions. In his time, he was known as a conductor. This music was bewildering to people. But here is a quote that I think maybe matters the most. Mahler himself said, my time will yet come. Humanly, I make every concession. Artistically, none. And he was right. You know, he he certainly remembered as a great conductor, but all over the world, people love Mahler as a composer. Now it's time to get to your reviews from Apple Podcasts. What do we have, Evan? We got a five-star review from Yemek Sepeti on April 2. Uh, this is somebody who was coming, uh, writing to us from Turkey, if I'm not mistaken. And this reviewer gave us five stars and said, Just listen to Rachmaninoff, and I was looking for a good, informative podcast about his life and influences. Found your podcast, and it's deliciously informative and interesting and entertaining. Looking forward to listening to the other episodes. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Yemek Sepeti. I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing your name correctly, but we do appreciate your feedback, and we'll, we'll do the best we can to keep them coming. And actually, Evan, it's funny. I looked up because it sounded a little familiar. Yemek Sepeti Attic. Um, I believe that's actually the Uber Eats of Turkey. So that's also interesting. Hopefully you have uh, can order something nice to eat while you listen to Mahler's First Symphony. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music. For more information on this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. You can send me comments and episode ideas to classicalbreakdown at weta.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review in your podcast app. I'm John Panther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from WETA Classical. <laughs> ¶¶